Good morning. Will you pray with me, please? Let's, let's bow and pray. Well, that was such a, a good thing to be able to do, to, to come and to sing and celebrate the birth of our Savior. Lord, thank you for the joy that you have given us in your Son. And I pray today that as we turn now to uh, your Word, uh, we pray you would teach us, teach us to understand who you are. Lord, will you please blow away all the foolish thoughts that we have about you and replace them with your truth. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Ever since I was a kid, uh, I've been a fan of the comic strip Peanuts by... Uh, Charles M. Schultz, and I want to share with you one of, uh, one of my favorite strips, so if we could get that up there. In the first panel, Charlie Brown sees Snoopy, and Snoopy's up typing on his doghouse, uh, and Charlie Brown says to him, I hear you're writing a book on theology, and he says, I, I hope you have a good title. Snoopy replies, I have the perfect title. Has it ever occurred to you that you might be wrong? (laughs) Jesus could have written that book. Because one of the things Jesus did was challenge a lot of wrong thinking. Wrong thinking about God. Wrong thinking about ourselves. Wrong thinking about what it means to know God and love God and be right with God. In fact, the story that Jesus told that we are focusing on in this series, often called the parable of the prodigal son, this story has as one of its main lessons that we're all wrong. Left to ourselves, we're all lost. We're lost from God, and we need Jesus to find us. We need Jesus to come and rescue us. And that is why Christmas happened. That is why Jesus was born. That's why he came. He came to seek and to save the lost. And that's everybody. That's all of us. Now, the story tells us our lostness might look very different from what we might imagine. Our lostness could look very immoral very rebellious, like the younger son in the story, the prodigal, or our lostness might look very moral, very upright, very proper, very religious, like the older son in the story. But one way or another, we're all lost because we've all done the same thing, which is to try to be God of our lives instead of trusting God with our lives. And so we're wrong, and we need to admit it. We need to come to that place to realize we're wrong, and we have dishonored God, and we need to admit we're lost, and that we need Jesus to rescue us from our lostness, which is exactly what he came to do. So this story tells us that. But There's even more wrong thinking that Jesus deals with in this story. 
and it's even more serious. See, the reason people get confused about lostness, why we get confused about what what it means to be lost and, and who are the lost and how you get found, the reason we get confused about lostness is that we're confused about God. We're confused about God and what he's really like. See, the people that Jesus first told this story to, those people thought this. They thought that God wants us to earn his approval by keeping his rules. That's what they thought. God wants us to earn his approval by keeping his rules. Now, some of the people, the rule-keeping people, They believed that about God, and they thought God was very pleased with them because they'd done such a good job of keeping his rules. But then the other people, the rule-breaking people, they believed the same thing about God, only they figured God hated them because they were breaking the rules. And Jesus says in this story, you're all wrong. You're wrong. And then he told this story to set them straight about what God is really like. He told this story to set us straight about what God is really like. And that's, that's why we're going to look at the story again today. And this time we're going to focus not on the two sons, but instead we're going to focus on the father. Because in telling this story to us, And describing this father to us, Jesus is really describing God and what he's really like. And we need to pay attention. We really need to pay attention because if we get this wrong, if we're wrong about who God is and what he's really like, then we're going to get everything else wrong that really matters. So let's let's pay attention. We're going to pick up the story A little ways into it, we're going to pick it up where the younger son has realized how stupid he's been. You know, he's the one who went off and blew his entire inheritance on immoral living, and he's come to realize uh, how foolish he's been, and he's made the decision to go back to his father. So we pick it up at verse 20 of of chapter 15 in Luke. So he got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him. His son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come. He replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. You know, the older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the father, his father went out and pleaded with him. 
But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and have never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Yet when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. What a father. What a father. Now, obviously, one story can't tell us everything we need to know about God. That's why we have a whole Bible Okay. But, but if this picture of God that Jesus gives us, if this picture of God does not fit with the picture of God that we carry around in our heads, then our picture of God needs to change. It needs to change. What do we see in this picture? We see a father who runs to embrace and forgive and cover the shame of his son who has realized how wrong he's been and wants to come home. We see a father who gently pleads with his other son to turn away from his hatred and his self-righteousness and his self-pity We see a father in the words of the Old Testament who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. And we see a father who wants to celebrate his joy and celebrate a feast with both of his sons. Does that fit your picture of who God is? And what he's like. If not, I want to urge you today to ask Jesus to change your picture of God. So let's see what we can learn. I want to look particularly at the Father and his celebration and see what we can learn about God from a Father's celebration. One thing we can learn is that God's heart overflows with joy. God's heart overflows with joy. Now I want you to notice at the end of the story, notice what the father says to his older son who's refusing to go in because he wants absolutely nothing to do with any celebration that involves his idiot younger brother. And he is furious furious with his father for for having this feast, having this celebration. Look what the father says. He says, son, we had to celebrate and be glad. We had to. That is so intriguing to me. He doesn't say I wanted to. He doesn't say I thought it was a good idea to. He says we had to. In other words, celebration 
was necessary. It was not optional. Son, we had to celebrate. What in the world does that mean? Well, I think Jesus gives us the answer in the two other stories that he tells right before he tells this story. Luke chapter 15, verse 4. Speaking to the Pharisees, And the teachers of the law, the rule keepers, he says, suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Does he not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? That's not the end of the story. And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me. For I have found my lost sheep. Well, you notice Jesus' point is not that people go looking for things that they've lost until they find them. His point is that when people find lost things, they rejoice and they celebrate with others. And then now he connects the dots to God. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. Same point, second story. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she not light a lamp, sweep the house until she finds it and and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, rejoice with me, I have lost found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, what's Jesus doing here? He is appealing to what is normal, what is expected, what is right in everyday life when something wonderful happens to us and makes us happy. What do we do? Like, like finding something we greatly value that we've lost. What do we do? We celebrate. We express our happiness by sharing it with friends and family and, and maybe even the occasional total stranger. And if it's a big enough deal, we throw a party. We, we make a special meal or, or we go out to eat and we spend money and we celebrate. Why? Because we have to. We have to. Not in the sense of that there's a law that says we have to. You know, some legislation. It's not that somebody is forcing us to. It's not not an inside of us kind of, or an outside of us kind of have to. It's an inside of us kind of have to. There's an impulse within us that we just can't refuse. Our hearts make us celebrate. Okay, use your imagination for a minute. I want you to imagine you're a cancer patient who has endured months of chemotherapy, and you've lost your hair, and you've lost your appetite, and you've lost your energy, and then you go and you get the test results from your doctor, and he says, I have the best possible news. There is no more cancer. What do you do? Or let's say you're a high school senior and you've just received word that you've gotten accepted into your first choice for college with a full ride scholarship. 
all expenses paid for four years. What do you do? No, what do your parents do? Okay? Or, or, let's say you're a married couple and you have wanted children for years. And you have tried and tried and you keep getting disappointed and then finally it happens. You're pregnant. What do you want to do? No, no, that's not even the right way to ask it. What do you have to do? Because if you don't do it, your head will explode. (laughs) What do you have to do? You have to tell people. You have to rejoice. You have to celebrate. You just have to. When our hearts are full of joy, they have to overflow into celebration. I defy you. The next time something awesome happens to you, I defy you not to tell anyone about it. You can't do it. You will not be able to do it. You'll find a checker in line at Winco and tell them if you have to. You will tell somebody. You have to celebrate. Do you know why you have to celebrate? Do you know why you're wired that way? Do you know why you have to celebrate? Because that's what God does. And he made you in his image. God's heart overflows with joy into celebration. And he invites us to share in his celebration. And we see this again and again and again throughout the Bible. So really, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they had no excuse. They really should have known this about God. They should have known this. The law of Moses, for example. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word law of Moses. Maybe you think gloom and doom. The law of Moses contains repeated instructions for the people of Israel to celebrate as an act of worship. Okay, for example, Deuteronomy chapter 14, verse 23. Eat. I love commands that begin this way. (laughs) Eat the tenth, the tithe of your grain, the new wine and oil, the firstborn of your herds and flocks, in the presence of the Lord your God at the place he will choose as his dwelling for his name. He's talking there about the temple that will be in Jerusalem. So that you may learn to revere the Lord your God always. But if that place is too distant and you have been blessed by the Lord your God and cannot carry your tithe, because he's blessed you so much, you have so much, and because the place where the Lord will choose to put his name is so far away, then exchange your tithe for silver and take the silver with you and go to the place the Lord your God will choose. Use the silver to buy whatever you like, cattle, sheep, wine, other fermented drink, anything you wish, then you and your household shall eat there in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice. Or here, Deuteronomy 16, celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. Talk about a party. (laughs) After you have gathered the produce of your threshing floor and your wine press. Whose idea was this? Be joyful at your feast. Be joyful at your feast. You, your sons, your daughters, your men servants, your maidservants, the Levites, the aliens, the fatherless, the widows. Yeah, bring everybody. For seven days, celebrate the feast to the Lord your God at the place 
the Lord will choose. For the Lord your God will bless you in all of your harvest and in all the work of your hands, and your joy will be complete. The Old Testament is full of commands like this. Eat, drink, celebrate, rejoice in the presence of the Lord. Why does God want you to do it in his presence? What do you think God feels when he sees his people celebrating in his presence? you think he's up in heaven with his arms crossed and a scowl on his face? No. This is his celebration. This is his celebration. He likes it. His heart overflows with joy. One more, Nehemiah 8. I love this. This is after the people of Israel had gone into exile because of their gross sin over centuries. And they come back to the land. The Nehemiah, the governor, Ezra, the priest, and scribe, and the Levites who were instructing the people said to them all, this day is sacred. That word means holy. This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all of the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Oh, man, we're in trouble. We've blown it. Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared This day is holy to the Lord. Do not grieve, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Is that what a holy day, is that what you think of when you think of holiness? If you were to picture a holy group of people, what would they look like? What expression would be on their faces? Would they be celebrating? Would they be rejoicing? Where did we get the idea that holiness is grim? Sure, there are times when being serious, even sorrowful, is the right thing to do. Like when the younger son realized what a jerk he had been to his father, and he went back home and he apologized. That sorrow was right. It was right for him to repent. But listen, repentance is not the highest expression of godliness. To obey is better than sacrifice. And every parent knows this. I mean, if you're a parent, ask yourself, which would you prefer? Would you rather that your children be obedient and happy? Or would you rather that they disobeyed, but then felt really bad about that, and then came and felt terrible and repented? Which would you rather have? Exactly. And why would we think it would be any different with God? Joy and celebration are not minor topics in the Bible. Check it out. They're not minor issues with God. They're a big deal because God's heart overflows with joy into celebration. When does that happen? Okay, here's one example. Here's a for instance, and this is the second thing we can learn about God. Here, God celebrates when lost people come home. Jesus says twice that there is rejoicing in heaven When a sinner repents. In other words, when a lost person finally wises up, realizes they've dishonored God, they've rejected God, they have uh, belittled God by trying to be God, and they realize this is bad. 
And so they repent and they want to come home to the Father. When someone who is lost from God comes home, there is rejoicing in heaven, Jesus says. And then this story of the younger son coming home and the reception that he gets, the embrace, the the forgiveness, the feast, that shows us what Jesus means. Who's doing the rejoicing? Rejoicing in heaven isn't just talking about the angels. The angels aren't rejoicing while God is scowling. This story tells us that it's the Father's celebration. He's celebrating. Does that fit your picture of God? That when you finally admit your lostness, that God throws a party for you, and the name on the cake is your name, and that God himself will rejoice that one who has been dead to him is now alive. Does that fit? See, the Pharisees should have known this too, because the Bible is full of passages where God calls people to repent, just like we see God pleading with that older son. I mean, read the prophets. Most of those prophecies are about God pleading, calling the people to repent and to come back, and to come home, and enjoy his forgiveness. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way, and the evil man his thoughts, let him turn to the Lord, and he will what? He will have mercy on him. Let him turn to our God, for he will freely pardon. Well, what's that look like? Back up to verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come, buy and eat, come, buy wine and milk without money. Without cost. How can you do that? Well, because it's already paid for. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. God uses the language of feasting, of celebration, to describe what awaits those who will turn from their lostness and come home to him. Now, why does God do that? Because it's his duty? Because it's in the contract and he can't get out of it? And what he really wants to do is condemn you. But there's this thing about if you'll repent, put your trust in Jesus, then he has to forgive you. He has to take you in. Is that it? God does this out of duty. Look at Zephaniah 3.15. Now this was spoken to people who had been lost from God in their sin. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, it's not talking just about the city, it's talking about the inhabitants of the city, which we know from Revelation ultimately refers to all those who put their trust in Jesus Christ. On that day they will say, do not fear, O Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. 
He will rejoice over you with singing. God does not rejoice with singing out of duty, but out of delight. Does that fit your picture of God? If it doesn't, tear your picture up and replace it with this one. I was thinking to myself, I think so much of life, so much of living by faith consists of doing just this, of tearing up our wrong ideas about God and replacing them with the truth. Hey, time for one more. One more thing we can learn about God from this story. God wants you to celebrate with him for your good. Jesus is a master storyteller, and, and one of the masterful things about this story is the way it ends. It's a cliffhanger. You get to the end of the story, and the father is pleading with the son, saying, the older son, come in, come into the feast. He, he doesn't want to, and the father says, we had to do this. We had to. We had to celebrate. And then the, then the story ends, and you're going, well, wait, wait. What What happened? Did the older son go in, or does he stay out, alienated from his father, alienated from his father's celebration? What happens? Jesus doesn't tell us. Why doesn't he? Because we have to choose. We have to choose. Do we want to join God's celebration or not? If we are the younger son, if that's what we're like, trying to be God of our own lives by breaking all the rules, following our own path, doing our own thing, are we just going to keep doing that? Are we going to keep on wallowing around in life's pigsties? Are we going to admit we're wrong and go home to the Father? Or if we're the older son, self-righteous, full of self-pity and pride. Are we, you know, we, trying to be God of our own lives by keeping the rules so diligently, basically, that we, you know, we're trying to force God's hand. God has to bless us because we've been so good. Are we going to do that? Are we going to just keep on nursing our grievances and how unfair it all is and wallow around in our self-pity and our self-righteousness? Or are we going to finally admit how arrogant we are? And are we going to realize how staggeringly wonderful it is of God to even want us at his feast? And go in. Let me ask you a question. If the older son does go in, who will benefit the most? He will. Who benefited the most when the younger son realized how wrong he was and came home to his father? Who benefited the most? He did. And who will benefit the most if you will admit your lostness and come home. You will. God invites us to celebrate with Him, to join His celebration for our good.
And it is a choice. That's why the Bible is filled with all these commands like uh, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Or Psalm 37.4. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Those aren't suggestions. Those are commands. Rejoice in the Lord. Delight yourself in the Lord. There are many, many more. And that can really confuse us because we say, well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, joy is an emotion. Delight is an emotion. How do you command emotions? Well, think of it this way. Think of it as choosing a perspective. Choosing an attitude. Choosing to intentionally think about all of the good things God is, all of the good things God has done for us, and all of the good things God will do for us in Jesus Christ. See, one of the reasons, I, I think there's a big reason why we get so bogged down with gloom and despair is that we let our minds wallow around in negative thinking that ignores or even contradicts God's promises because our circumstances are so hard. And they are hard. Some of them are really hard. But see, to, to let our present circumstances so control our thinking that we wallow around in thoughts that ignore or contradict the promises of God Our present circumstances are never the whole story. And they are never the end of the story. If you belong to Jesus Christ, the end of the story is going to change everything. We need to remember that. We need to intentionally call to mind. That's what I'm talking about. Choosing to rejoice. Choosing to delight in the Lord. We can do it. We can rejoice. We can choose to rejoice by choosing to call to mind what God promises to all of those who will come to Jesus to rescue them from their lostness. Let me say that one more time. We can choose to rejoice by choosing to remember, to call to mind all that God has promised for those who will come to Jesus to be rescued from their lostness. Some examples, like Romans 8.18. Remember this. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Or this one, Romans 8.28. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Or this one, John 14.2. Jesus says, In my Father's house are many dwelling places, many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you... I will come again and receive you to myself so that where I am, there you may be also. Promise. Are you celebrating those promises today? I'm preaching to myself here. Thanks for listening in. I need to do this a whole lot more than I do it. To intentionally choose to rejoice. To intentionally choose to remember. 
God's promises for all those who have come to Jesus to be rescued from their lostness. Are you celebrating his grace and compassion? Are you celebrating his invitation to come home? God wants you to come home. Are you celebrating that? Are you celebrating his forgiving embrace, his kiss, his rejoicing over you with singing? Are you anticipating that coming feast that he's promised to us? If we'll go in, are you celebrating him? The choice is yours. Stay out in the pigsty. Stay out shivering in the cold. Or accept his completely undeserved invitation to come in and join in the celebration, his celebration. Now, the price of attendance is astronomical because the price is that of the penalty, paying the penalty for our sin, and you can't afford it. You can begin to pay this. But the incredible news is you don't have to pay it. It's already paid for. Jesus paid it for you on the cross. All you've got to do is accept the invitation and come to Jesus and say, all right, I'm wrong. I need to be found. Jesus, you're the only one. Will you please take me to the feast? And he will. He absolutely will. Just admit you've been wrong. You've been wrong about being lost. You've been wrong about who God is. You've been wrong. And ask Jesus to take you inside. Can you uh, bow with me and let's just chew on this and pray? Every time I read this story, God reminds me how little my picture of him is and how much better he is than I think he is. And I hope that's been happening to you today. Maybe you've known all this and you just and maybe have forgotten it or times have gotten tough and you're thinking the negative stuff, and you're not choosing to rejoice in our Father and His celebration that He invites us to and that He's paid for. Or maybe today this is the first time and God has just by His Holy Spirit blown away your puny little thoughts about Him. And you're realizing today that God is so much bigger, so much greater than you have thought. If you're hearing his call to come in to the feast, I want to just urge you to accept it. And ask Jesus to take you in. Admit you've been wrong and ask him to take you in and to pay the price for you. And come on in 
and join the feast. And for all of us, we just need to pray that God will teach us what it means to celebrate with him. So will you take a minute and pray? And I will too. Just a second, I'll close. So pray and talk to your Father in heaven right now. Father, I, I, I don't even know what to say. My, um, my thoughts about you at times are so stupid. And this picture is so amazing. Thank you for sending Jesus to teach us who you really are, and not just to teach us, but to save us, to seek us and save us. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who hasn't yet said yes to your invitation in Christ, that today will be the day for them. And may we all choose to rejoice, to delight ourselves in the Lord, to celebrate how good you are. We pray. Amen. Amen.